what a rich and robust hymn written many years ago that we are still singing today. Co-eternal, consubstantial. Boy, these right out of the, the creeds of the first, uh, first century, or actually the first several centuries, the third and following there, that have just been so well articulated that we can rest upon uh, the, the worthiness and the truthfulness of these declarations of our Lord. As you remain standing for the reading of the text from the Scripture this morning from Psalm 22, we're going to pick up where we left off on Friday as we consider this psalm. I'm going to begin reading at verse 19 through the end of the verse, and we're going to see the pivot point of this particular psalm as we begin reading. You'll notice that at the very end, or 22, uh, chapter 20, verse 21, that is, very end of verse 21. That's the pivot. Let's now hear the word of God. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who feared him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. And the kingdoms, the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be be born, that he has done this. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are that our Savior has done this. And that you have raised him up and that we together with him have life this day and life everlasting. Guide us as we now consider this psalm and its purpose. And we pray that you would stir our hearts with the Spirit of God. That if there's anyone here today that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that your Spirit would draw him to himself this day and save the soul. We pray for us all that you would save us to the uttermost from all of our sins, and that we would be the holy people you have declared us to be. We pray most of all you would be glorified in our midst, above all things that we pray, that you would be glorified now in the preaching of your word, as the Lord Jesus himself declares your name in the midst of the congregation. We pray these things in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
In the beginning portion, the first section of the psalm, Psalm 22, beginning at verse 1 through 21, of which we read in the entirety of the psalm on Thursday night, which we looked at the first section on Friday night, we saw in the first section a suffering Savior. But in Psalm 22, through the end of the psalm, we see a successful Savior. Psalm 22 is prophetic in nature, identifying with the suffering and the success of the great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose prophecies were fulfilled in the man Jesus, the Son of God, who came in the flesh. And the first thing we should note about the the psalm here is God's answering his prayer. Between the two drastically different portions of this psalm is a hinge point. And the hinge is really one word in the Hebrew text, which is translated, you answered me. You answered me. It is clear that all the sufferings of the first portion of that psalm was not in vain. The best commentary we have on this particular verse is actually the Bible itself in Hebrews chapter 5. I'll just read you the one verse there. and it's, It says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of godly fear. He's speaking about the Father hearing the Son, the Son crying to the Father in the midst of suffering, and He was heard. When we consider the 24th verse of this psalm, which says there, For He has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has He hidden His face from Him, but when He cried to Him, He heard. Now the second part of Psalm 22 looks through the sufferings to the resurrection. The sufferings of Christ upon the cross. And it was looking beyond that. And as Christ was uttering this psalm upon the cross as He died. And we hear Him utter the first portion of that. It was characterized, however, through the cross to the joy and the celebration that God would answer His prayer even while He was hanging there suffering the first part. Jesus was confident as He hung there upon the cross and saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was confident of the success in His mission. And that is why He breathed up, It is finished. He had to trust His heavenly Father that as he died, that the Father would raise him back up. It is in this manner that the epistle to the Hebrews calls the Lord the author or the pioneer of our faith. Jesus has led our way in trusting God through all of life and through all of the sufferings of life, even to his final hour of death, So that whatever we encounter, whatever our lot, 
we know that God is faithful to hear our prayers and to answer us when we cry upon Him and cry to Him. The living Lord Jesus is proof of that. He has paved the way for us. He has blazed the trail. He has gone and trusted in God, even through death, that God would raise him up. And in the same manner, so are we to follow. Now there's a very brief explanation, I think, that I should give of verse 24. Because some may be wondering, how do you harmonize verse 24 with verse 1? Verse 24 says, For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. Now, in what way did God forsake Jesus in verse 1, but did not hide his face from him when he cried out to him in verse 24? You might be wondering. There are two Latin terms of which my students should know or possibly remember that expresses the guilt that was and the guilt that was not imputed to Christ on our account. Those two Latin phrases are this. Number one, the reatus culpe. The word reatus, if I'm saying that correctly, means accusation or charge. The reatus Poine is the other word. Ritus culpe, ritus poine. Ritus culpe, the word culpable comes from culpe. It is actually the term culpe means fault. And so the ritus culpe signifies the state of actually being guilty in the sense of worthy to blame. Worthy to blame. The retus poine, the word poine is from which we get penal or punishment, signifies the state of being worthy of punishment. Now, Jesus bore our guilt in the sense of retus poine, being charged and worthy of our punishment. And in this sense, the Father's wrath was unleashed upon him, and Jesus was forsaken in that hour. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And God the Father was treating Jesus in terms of us. But Jesus was completely sinless, blameless, and pure and without fault. In any sense. And was not in any sense guilty of being worthy to blame. See, he bore the guilt of Ritus Poine, but not the guilt of Ritus Culpe. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he has made him to be sin for us, For he, I missed a very important phrase, for he has made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For he has made him who knew no sin, retus cope, he was not. 
at fault or guilty in any sense. But he made him to be sin for us, read this point A, in terms of taking all of the punishment that our sins deserve. And because he was not to blame for any sin in himself, Psalm twenty-two twenty-four speaks of God's face not being hidden from the Savior when he prayed to him. See, it is only in this way can the substitutionary atonement be efficacious. A perfectly sinless one taking the place of the guilty one and enduring the punishment for the guilty one so that his punishment may be relieved and the righteousness of the guiltless might be imputed to our behalf. That is vicarious, complete substitutionary atonement. The second thing we should notice in this second portion of Psalm 22 is after he hears the prayer and begins to answer, we see our Savior's praise in verses 22 through 24. The first response any of us should always have to answer prayer is praise. If God answers us, we ought to praise. And that's what he does in verse 22. I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Now when he declares the Father's name in the midst of the congregation and to his brethren, that declaring God's name is a prophetic work. And remember that Jesus had staked his entire messiahship on the prophecy that God would raise him up from the dead. And Jesus' resurrected life is the ultimate answer to all of his prayers and his petitions for deliverance. And now that God has answered his prayer, the Savior praises Yahweh and he declares his name in the midst of his people. His brethren. Again, the best commentary we have from this, if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn with me because I'm going to read it more in its context to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 10 through 15. I want to read that and I want you to look at that if you have your Bibles. Because this quotes Psalm 22 and it shows who owns Psalm 22 and it puts it into exactly the context that we should be aware of for us this morning. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 10, says, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them his brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will sing to you praise. There's our quote. Verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I in the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death 
were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There's your commentary of Psalm 22. What we see here is Jesus' prophetic ministry declaring God's name to His brethren that He's not ashamed to call them His brothers and sisters in Christ because He led them to glory Himself. He is the leader of our praise today. I remember well a three-part sermon that Sinclair Ferguson preached. I think it was my first encounter at Ligonier Conference down in Orlando. And I, this might have even been in the pre-conference. And I remember where I was sitting, and I remember I heard this Scottish Presbyterian preacher that I've never heard before, and have fallen in love with his preaching ever since. Sinclair Ferguson uh, begins a profound sermon. I still contemplate that sermon. I still remember his three points. I think it's the only sermon I've ever remembered. I remember his sermon better than I ever remember any of mine. And I marvel at the astounding nature over which the Lord is present and his personal ministry in our very midst when we gather for worship. Personally present with us this morning. He outlined, his outline began actually in Hebrews chapter 12. You'll see how much of a profound impression it is because on every liturgy we have, that is the text. And it came as I heard his message. It speaks in Hebrews 12 that we don't come in contrast to Sinai, that's the previous kind, but we come to Zion. We come into the presence of God, into the presence of Jesus. We come into heaven itself when we worship. And I remember the profound statement that Sinclair Ferguson said that I've quoted many times. All true worship always happens in heaven itself. Guess where we are right now? Yes, we are in the company of an innumerable number of angels. We are in the company of just spirits that have preceded us. All of your loved ones, we are in their company this hour as we gather together in the name of Christ in the general assembly of God's people. But we are gathered in the presence of God Himself. And in Jesus, whose blood speaks of better things in this new covenant way. See, in Sinclair Ferguson's second point, he went to Hebrews 8.2. I'll just read that portion. It says, we have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. In three days He built up this tabernacle, the body Himself being raised from the dead. And in this tabernacle and through this tabernacle, we have the presence of God, the real and true Holy of Holies. And the word here that He became a minister of the sanctuary, the word minister is a unique word. It's not the typical doulos, it's not the typical diakonos, it is the word uh, that we get liturgy from. 
And the word here means that he is the liturgist of the sanctuary. And then he drove the point in point three, and he lands in the text of Hebrews chapter two. In Hebrews chapter two, quoting Psalm 22, right at this very point, shows us that it is our Lord Jesus Himself resurrected, who is the true preacher here this morning. He is the true worship leader here this morning. When the church is gathered to worship, the Lord is present. He will declare the Father's name in the midst of the congregation. He Himself is personally singing the Father's praise, leading our praise in the midst of the assembly. He then takes all of our worship, with all of its flaws, with all of our distractions, with all of our mistakes and imperfections, and He mediates it to the throne of God to make it acceptable to Him. That's why we pray in His name. That's why we worship in His name. We need a mediator still. And yet He makes it acceptable in God's sight. When you come to the table, you're not making yourself worthy to come. You're looking to Christ and His worthiness to come to His table that He has set for you this day. It is Christ who leads our singing. Oh, don't you wish you could hear Him audibly this morning? It was years later. And I heard Sinclair Ferguson speak again, and he quotes the passage in the Old Testament where God rejoices over his people with singing. And in the way that he put it, can you then imagine the day that when we hear audibly the voice of God singing with joy over his people, and how our voices would just be kind of caught up in the vortex of His voice. And yet the one voice that stands out above them all is God's Himself. Singing. Jesus leads our prayers. Jesus leads our praises. And Jesus is the one who serves us the table. Jesus is the one that gives the bread. Jesus is the one that gives us wine and not grape juice. That's Jesus. We need to accept wonderfully and joyfully everything that God has given to us. And give God thanks as Jesus gave Him praise. Our Savior was successful in the things that He set out to do. To bring many sons to glory. He was not ashamed to call us His brethren. And He is in our very midst praising the Father for answering His prayers upon the cross and all of the agony through life. And the prayers of the garden. All of these things because He is a successful Savior in all of His redeeming work. Third, we see in our Savior's success He becomes a surety for His people. Our Savior this morning is in our midst 
promising a vow and becoming himself surety for that vow. Verse 25 then expresses this surety. He says, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. Jesus today is paying his vows before you. He's paying his vows. Right now, he is saying, hear me, I'm paying my vows. The Savior promises to fulfill his vows to those who fear him. Do you fear him? Have you given your life to him? See, our Lord becomes a surety. A surety. A surety is a promise which one obligates himself to another to fulfill. Now, the Proverbs do warn us against being a surety in a foolish manner. We need to take heed to that kind of surety. But we cannot live life covenantally without surety. We make wedding vows in which we obligate ourselves one to another that we will fulfill our obligations to our spouse. We make baptismal vows to the extent that we are obligated to God to fulfill those things in faith. And God, by His own nature of the covenant, has obligated Himself, even when He swore to Abraham, it's in effect He becomes surety in Himself to Abraham, putting Himself on the line. In Hebrews 6, again, good commentary here, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Putting himself on the line. The Holy Spirit is a pledge from God to us. Ephesians 1 says that you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of the glory of God. And our Lord Jesus Christ himself is a surety for us. And Hebrews 7.22 affirms that Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Surety in and of itself is not wrong. It is, in fact, quite good in some cases, as long as what is vowed is paid. And that is what our successful Savior has done for us. He has become surety for us. He will fulfill His vows. And the contents of His vows are found in verse 26 and 27. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. He promises life and satisfaction to all who will turn to God. He uses the common imagery here of eating. And eating was an imagery throughout the Bible to picture personal appropriation of faith. You're going to eat in just a moment. But you can only do so if you are personally trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior and God has raised Him from the dead. But as you eat, it is showing the personal approbation of the faith. And like physical eating, which sustains our life and brings physical satisfaction, so likewise faith. Christ said to those who eat and drink with them that they will never hunger or thirst again. He's speaking spiritually. 
He promises that he will give everlasting life in the very presence of God. And the fourth and the final point in in Psalm 22 is, is a climactic point of the Savior's success. And we see that he is guaranteed a posterity in verse 30 through 31. In verse 30 it says, a posterity shall serve him. Now for Bible students, the word posterity is our word seed. Seed, that's such a covenantal word from the seed of the woman all the way down to Christ's seed himself. The seed of the seed, if you will. And it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. Covenantal seed. That's why we have babies. That's why we have a lot of babies. It's because that's God's seed. That's why we raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Because that is God's children. They will come and declare His righteousness to a people who will be born. You know what? That's you and me. That's you and me. We were not born when this was declared. And yet here we are in mind today. And He is personally with us declaring these things to us that He has done this. Now this is the seed that the Father promised to Messiah. Even Isaiah 53 that we read the other night. When you make His soul an offering for sin, He shall see His seed. This is a multi-generational inheritance for Jesus. Each generation has the duty and the privilege and the joy to pass on the gospel truth to the next generation. And notice here, we are part of that generation way back there that has now believed. And now there's going to be generations forward as we pass on this truth and this good news. And the message for for the people... It's simply this. He sums it all up in, the, in this last phrase. He hath done it. That's it. He hath done it. That's the message. Christ has done it. Jesus has done it all. It is finished. It is the once and for only sacrifice. This psalm has revealed All of that, either by the implication throughout or by the explicit Scripture that it reveals to us, whatever had to be done, the Savior did it. He was successful. He has done this. And the future generations, that's what we declare to our children, He has done this. There's nothing else that needs to be happened. There's nothing else that's needed. Nothing else can be done. He has done it all. You can't add to it. Don't try. You don't need to. He's done it all. And know this, people, as a closing application, as we think about this entire psalm and its completion As my old mentor would say when I was very down in the ministry one time, it's true for all of us. God never calls a man to mock him. God didn't call Christ, his son, and send him to the earth to mock him. 
And when the circumstances turned and the sufferings endured and all of these things, he was not being mocked by God, which ultimately and only is what matters. But for those who trust the Lord, know this, God will deliver you in your time of trouble. He will deliver. He will save you. He will hear your cry. He will answer your prayer. Why? Because He did it for our Savior. And if your life is in Him, then God is going to deal with you as He dealt with Jesus. And that's a good thing for you and me. God is faithful. He can be trusted. For those who put their trust in Christ and walk by faith and not by sight, Christ will never leave you nor forsake you. Ever. He fulfills His vows. You are to Him His posterity, His inheritance, His family, His brothers and sisters with whom He is not ashamed to call you that and lead you into glory as He has done. He is among us this day personally. And He declares these things to us. And we need to hear His voice, His prophetic voice, even through this very fallible preacher. He is among us today, singing the Father's praise. And if our ears of faith can hear it, it will. So let us join in with Him and now our prayer of praise. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are For our suffering Savior. Oh and how thankful we are. For our successful Savior. We are thankful for Jesus Christ. And for all of the work he has done. He has done it all. And how thankful we are to you. For thy great salvation. Renew its joy in us today. And pray that you would invigorate us. In this life. May we be fed today of His bread and wine, of His life indeed, and may we rejoice in the spiritual sustenance that we have before us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.